Well, welcome to our final session of typology as it relates to the book of Genesis. Um, next week, next time we're together, we will begin looking in the book of Exodus, and uh, we'll kind of pick up pace there as we work our way through the Old Testament. One of the great Bible scholars named uh, William Evans, he once said this. He said, you can cut the Bible anywhere and it will bleed. And what he meant by that was to say that every book of the Bible, every chapter of Scripture, in one way or another, it points to the atoning blood sacrifice of Christ. It all points in that direction. One way or another, it all points in that way. In typology, what we find is that there are some uh, events that happen uh, that will we've talked about, we will continue to talk about, but there are some events that happen that, that solely focus on the blood sacrifice of Christ, the atoning work of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Christ in the, in the belly of the earth. So many things point and are fulfilled directly in Jesus, but there is a typology that points to other things that are fulfilled because of Jesus, because of Jesus's work. And so tonight what we're going to do as we um, just kind of cherry pick some things throughout the book of Genesis that really don't justify an entire study uh, that we may have. So I just kind of compiled all these together. Um, what we're going to find is that some of these do point to Christ. They are connections to Jesus. But what we're going to find tonight is that there are a lot of things that um, don't necessarily point to the person of Jesus but they point to something that is available to us now because of the fulfillment of Jesus. And so, uh, in other words, they're an actual event that happened in the Old Testament that we now have access to because of the work of Jesus. But without the work of Jesus, we would not have access to. And so that's why they're important that we study. And uh, as we dig in tonight, I want to take us all the way back to the beginning, the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. I want to talk to you uh, about Abel for a few moments. Um, most of you would realize that Abel was one of the sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Adam and Eve, they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, we know their story. Uh, some people believe that they may have even been born at the same time as twins. Um, but the point is, is that um, we believe that there is a connection between Abel and Christ. Uh, there are three different types of connections, but, but the first one I want to share with you is this in your notes. That Abel was a descendant of Eve just as Jesus was a descendant of Eve. Now, this may not make a lot of sense at the outset, but if you'll just give me a couple of minutes to explain, I, I hope to be able to make some sense of this. For Adam and Eve, having male children was vital for them. It wasn't just vital for them, but as we're going to find in just a moment, it's vital for us, it's, it's vital for all of human creation. And the reason is because in the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, once Adam and Eve had walked in creation and then they had chosen to rebel against God and sin against God and God had uh, exiled them from the garden, he had issued consequences to them. There's a statement that's made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and it's a prophetic utterance that the Father is speaking out in Genesis 3.15. It's what we call the, the Proto-Evangelium, which basically is interpreted the first gospel. And what it means is this, is that it was a prophetic declaration that the Father himself made. And what he was saying is that there would be a Messiah that would come 
that would destroy the works of the evil one. In Genesis 3.15, this is what the Lord says. Again, he's speaking to the serpent because at this point, Lucifer has taken the form of a serpent. This is what he says. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, being the seed of the woman, being the Messiah, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in other words, what's being stated here to Lucifer, but documented for our benefit, is the first gospel. It's the Father in heaven putting Satan on notice that his time is limited, that there's a Messiah that's coming that's going to crush his works and crush his head. Um, this uh, portion of scripture is probably one of the most studied in all of Christendom throughout the ages. Uh, but in a nutshell, it's a prophetic declaration of the first gospel. What we find here when the scripture says that uh, the Messiah shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, what the Father's saying is this, is that a Messiah's coming, and the word that's used in the Hebrew, they're both translated bruise, but the word that's used in Hebrew is slightly different. The first word when it says, he shall bruise your head, is a term that's used to mean fatally crush your head. The second term that, he, that you shall bruise his heel is not a fatal statement. It's not a fatal word. They're different. And so what the Father's saying in essence is this, is that the Messiah, when he comes, speaking to Lucifer, he says, when the Messiah comes, he will fatally crush your head even though you shall bruise his heel. And so what the Father's saying is he's saying, listen, the Messiah's going to come. And although there's going to be a moment when the Messiah is high and lifted up, that it appears that Lucifer is won by striking the heel of the Messiah. But in the end, the Messiah is going to crush the head of the serpent and in process destroying all of his evil works. It's all tied to this genealogy. I don't know if you've ever been reading through Scripture. There are definitely portions in the Old Testament where you read through Scripture and you're just like, you know, Justin begat Levi and Justin begat Lucas and Justin begat Laurel and Justin begat, you know, on and on and on. Um, you know, at some point as you're reading, you're just kind of nodding off. But the reality is this, is that every word of scripture is breathed by God. There is a purpose. There is an intention. There's an intent for every word, every genealogy that's listed. The phenomenal thing, the writers of scripture knew this, even related to the genealogy of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we find the genealogy of Jesus as it, or excuse me, Matthew 1, as it relates to Mary, his mother. But in Luke 3, we find Jesus' genealogy as it relates to his earthly father, Joseph. The reason this is so important in Jesus' life especially is because the writers needed to see a clear path that the Messiah was not only related to King David, right? Because that was a prophetic uh, fulfillment that had to take place. The, the land had to be cleared so that the Messiah can make a clear connection to David, but not only to David, but all the way back to Adam and Eve, because the prophetic fulfillment was that the seed of the woman will be the one to crush the head fatally of the serpent. And so these things are all important, and indeed, Jesus did absolutely disarm and crush the enemy in his victory on the cross. Number two, we find a connection between Abel and Jesus in that Abel faced unjust persecution just as Jesus faced unjust persecution. 
Genesis 4.8, we're reminded where uh, Adam, or excuse me, uh, Cain and Abel, there in the field, they go and they offer a sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord is pleased with one because it's offered by faith, and the Lord is displeased with the other because it's offered by the works of the flesh. And the scriptures remind us that Cain was so upset, he was angry, the Lord even confronted his anger, asking him why he was so upset. But Cain could not control his anger. He went and he killed his brother Abel, and his brother Abel, being a righteous man, who offered an honorable sacrifice to the Lord, was persecuted unjustly for his worship in the same way that Jesus was unjustly persecuted for his worship. We find Jesus later in Scripture. He's being persecuted for the most ridiculous things. He's being persecuted for raising up a paralyzed man because it was the wrong day of the week. He's being, he's being destroyed verbally because he opened the eyes of a blind man who had been born blind. For, for dozens of years, he's being persecuted because he healed this man on the Sabbath. Jesus would make the statement. He would say, listen, if they persecuted me, they are going to persecute you. If they come against the things that I say, they're definitely going to come against the things you say. And so we find a connection with Abel that in the same way that he was unjustly persecuted, we find later that Jesus was unjustly persecuted. And then finally for Abel, number three, we find that Abel's blood cried out for vengeance, while Jesus's blood cries out for forgiveness. So there's a little bit of an opposite effect here. But the point is, is that both of the blood of Cain and the blood of Christ cry out for something. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Beautifully, he says this. He says, you have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance, like the blood of Abel. And so you've got two innocent men here who have given their blood, and both of their blood, the scripture says that Cain's blood, or excuse me, Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and it it seeks vengeance, it, it seeks justification. But the blood of Jesus cries out for the forgiveness of sinners. It cries for mercy, and it cries out for us. Moving right along uh, in Genesis, we find the man Enoch. We talked a little bit about Enoch a couple of weeks ago, and we'll just briefly touch on him tonight. But number one, we find that Enoch walked with God in the same way that Jesus walked with God. Um, Genesis uh, 5, 24, you you know the scripture, uh, Enoch walked with God faithfully and then he was no more, for God took him. Uh, God raptured Enoch, this righteous man of God. And we find a similar walk that Jesus has with the Father in that Jesus lives a sinless life. We see Jesus even making the statement, listen, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything unless he tells me to. I don't act in a way that's displeasing. I do everything. I walk righteously with the Lord in a similar way that Enoch did. Number two in your notes, Enoch preached judgment just as Jesus preached judgment. Um, The book of Jude is such a fascinating book. We did a study on the book of Jude earlier in the year, and uh, it was one of my favorite studies. I've never done that study. If you get a chance, it may be good to go back and review that, but it was one of my favorite studies I've ever done. But the book of Jude is a very unique book. It gives us such insight to things that no other book of Scripture gives to us. And one of those insights it gives us relates around the life of Enoch, and it tells us a little bit more about Enoch's lifestyle 
And one of the things that it reminds us of Enoch is that Enoch prophesied about evil people. He prophesied that there would be judgment that would come on wicked and evil people and that the Lord would bring justice to the earth. And as, as much as so many in Western Christianity want to steer away from this, the reality is that Jesus talked about the judgment of God a lot. He talked about the judgment of God a lot. Uh, some scholars say, you know, if you want to speak specifically about the judgment of hell, like eternal judgment, uh, some scholars estimate uh, that Jesus talked about hell 13% of the time. Out of all of the, the you know, 1,800 verses or whatever it is that, that Jesus taught, that 13% of those were talking about the judgment of God in hell. But even broader than that, Jesus talked a lot about judgment on this earth and consequences that God would bring about um, to those. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating study to get into, but the point of what I'm trying to say is this, is that in the same way that Enoch preached judgment before the judgment came, Christ himself preached judgment before the judgment came as well. One of the more fascinating out of the book of, of Genesis uh, is a little bit nuanced, but it is revolving around the Tower of Babel. Uh, in your notes, um, you can read here with me, uh, the note says this, that Babel brought separation with diversity of language, just as Pentecost brought unity with heavenly language. I'm going to say that again. That's a mouthful. Babel brought separation with diversity of language, just as Pentecost brought unity with heavenly language. You remember in Genesis chapter 11, what happens? The people of the earth are gathered together. They speak a common language. They're a common culture. They're a common people, and they come together in rebellion against God, and they say, we're going to build a tower that we can climb, and we are going to reach the heavens just as God. And they use this phrase, they say, so that we can make a name for ourselves. And so out of their arrogance, out of their, um, their lack of humility, they, they try to make a name for themselves. And the Lord comes and he says this in Genesis 11, verse 7. He says, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. And so there is a phrase that's often associated with this when you dig in a little bit to typology, and it's the idea that the events at Pentecost reversed the events at Babel. Okay, um, now uh, again, this is nuanced, so I'm going to try to bring as much clarification as, a, as I can to it, but, I, but I'll say this, there are some that say, well, it didn't exactly reverse the events of Babel, and I would agree to a degree. Um, they would say uh, the events at Pentecost overcame the issues at Babel, and I understand what they're saying, but, but let me explain kind of where I'm going with this. I believe personally that Babel has been reversed by Pentecost in two primary ways, and on that second way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expound a little bit. Number one, it's reversed in this sense. Instead of people trying to wickedly reach heaven, which was happening at Babel, heaven has righteously reached down to people. The events of Pentecost were not about people achieving heaven. They were not about people climbing the ladder or building something to reach God. It was all about God descending. It was all about the Spirit of God falling and filling his people fresh and new. The second way that Pentecost reversed Babel is this. Instead of people being separated as judgment, people are now brought together as celebration. So the events of Babel, uh, uh, 
part of God's judgment was to separate them and to break them into different languages, different cultures, different people. I mean, it, it would just, they would spread throughout all the earth. This is why today we have different languages. This is why we have different nations. This is why um, we are an international type of community, okay? So they were separated as a sign of judgment, but at Pentecost, it almost seems that God reversed that, and now he's bringing unity across people from all the earth, okay? But let me just say it like this. Um, he did not reverse Babel in the sense that he did away with the diversity of who people are. Okay, that's the main issue with the phrase that God uh, reversed the events at Babel with Pentecost. Because the reality is this, is that um, today, and not only today, but in eternity, we're going to find that God still celebrates different languages and different skin colors and different cultures. He still celebrates that stuff. And so I understand why we don't want to say that's exactly reversed, um, but you understand the, the, the nuance there, okay? So uh, let, me, let me just remind you of this, or let me say it a different way. It may not have reversed what happened at Babel, but it drove out the hate that existed as a result of Babel. Okay, the, the unity of Pentecost drove out the hate um, in the people of God. John the Revelator wrote this. This is what he said. He said, and then I looked and I saw, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we all say amen. And so not only do we see the diversity of cultures and peoples and languages and all these different things that we celebrate now, but even in eternity, this is what John the Revelator sees. And so in that sense, it wasn't exactly reversed, but many of the events at Babel were reversed by uh, the events of Pentecost, and we thank God for that. Melchizedek is an interesting character. In your notes, we find that Melchizedek was a priest king just as Jesus was a priest king. He's this mysterious figure that we find in the book of Genesis. You remember he has an encounter with Abraham, and uh, we find that Melchizedek is a priest, but he's also a king. And Abraham looks up to Melchizedek. He is, he is superior to Abraham. Uh, this is the first time that we see a tithe given to a priest in Melchizedek. And uh, there, there are just so many connections to Christ, especially in the book of Hebrews. I would encourage you, we don't have time to dig into it all tonight, but I want to encourage you, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Genesis, or excuse me, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, all of these speak to Melchizedek. And they, uh, especially in the book of Hebrews, the connections to the Messiah are made from this really mysterious figure. I read a very short uh, portion to you from Genesis, or excuse me, from Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus became a priest, not by meeting the physical requirement of belonging to the tribe of Levi, but by the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. And the psalmist pointed this out when he prophesied about the Messiah. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
And so even the writer of Hebrews is making the connection to the typology and how Melchizedek was a representative of Christ and that Christ is also a priest and a king, which was forbidden in you know, the normal flow of things. And so you have these two really uh, distinct figures that complement and uh, there's typology that brings the connection. Next in your notes, we have uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were judged in the beginning just as the earth will be judged in the end. Uh, Peter in his epistle, this is what he says, God commend, or excuse me, God did not commend Sodom and Gomorrah. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so what we find here in Sodom and Gomorrah, and we even see Jesus speak to this. Again, we see uh, Jude speak to this. But we have an example. Jude calls it an example. Uh, Peter calls it an example of judgment that happens. And they say it's, it's an example in Genesis of an actuality that's going to happen in Revelation. And so this judgment that's to come, this may be related in some way to uh, what we refer to as the tribulation period, uh, specifically uh, Revelation 9, I believe it is. Uh, scripture speaks about fire that literally comes from, uh, you know, from above to consume and to destroy as one of the judgments of God. Um, this may be the connection point that there's judgment in the beginning that is a foreshadowing of the judgment at the end of time. Um, or it may be a foreshadowing to the final judgments where scripture says that we will all stand before the Lord, each of us individually, and we will give account for how we have lived our lives. And the Bible says that we will uh, present our works to the Lord and they will be tried by fire as a sign of judgment. And so those of us who are in Christ don't have to worry much about that regarding our salvation. We are saved. Uh, we just have to worry about it in regards to uh, reward and responsibilities and roles in the next life. And that's why we're encouraged to live godly lives in this life. And so uh, there is a foreshadowing. Again, it's the bookend thing we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, there is, uh, on one side, you have a judgment that is, it seems, you know, comprehensive in the sense, definitely for Sodom and Gomorrah, but in a sense, it's only a glimpse of the judgment that's to come. That is definitely comprehensive. And so uh, there is some type of foreshadowing there. And then finally in your notes, we look at the man whose name is Judah. Now Judah, as we discussed in our last study, Judah was one of the brothers of Joseph. Um, at a certain point in Judah's life, there was definitely some maturing that happened from the events that happened early on with his brother Joseph to later, several, maybe even a couple of decades later, we find Judah as he stands before the Pharaoh, as they've come back to get grain for their family, he stands there and uh, the Pharaoh, or Joseph at the time, I guess the second in command, uh, he's gonna allow the brothers to go back to Egypt but Joseph looks at his brother and he says, you all can go, but you've got to leave your brother Benjamin here as, as a deposit in a sense. And what we find is that Judah offered himself as a substitute for Benjamin, just as Jesus offered himself as a substitute for all of us. Listen to what the brother says in Genesis 44 verses, uh, verse 33. He says, 
please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return to his brothers. In other words, this is a foreshadowing of the substitutionary death that Christ laid down for us and that this brother who in one hand was incredibly destructed for his brother Joseph, later in his life he is now willing to be enslaved for his younger brother Benjamin, which is a beautiful picture of the work that our elder brother Jesus has laid down his life for us and redeemed us. Even Jesus speaks to this, right? You remember in the book of Mark, and I believe it's in Luke, he says, uh, I didn't come to serve, or excuse me, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, I didn't just come to serve, but I came to surrender my life. I came to take your place. I came to be your substitute so you wouldn't have to suffer the things that I'm going to have to suffer so that you could come into eternal life and eternity with him. It's an incredible, incredible gift. And we find ourselves at the end of the study of typology in Genesis. And so we are very excited to be able to jump in next week as we focus on the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. I would encourage you to read ahead a little bit uh, the first few chapters and uh, maybe do some guesswork as far as which direction I'm going. That may be a little fun for you, but we look forward to seeing you back here next week. God bless you all so much. Thank you.